Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I hope that we can get the constitutional standard higher, that there can be a case where they will make a determination that is more protective of people's lives and Fourth Amendment rights. But I don't know if we have the court for that quite yet. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio. I'm Nancy Mullane, executive producer, and we're in the studio to talk about our most recent episode, Death by Police, A Mother's Diary. Our story is the recordings by one mother after a police officer in Madison, Wisconsin, shot her 19-year-old son to death. Andrea Irwin is not alone. There are mothers, sisters, brothers, uncles all over the country suffering from the loss of a loved one to a police shooting. In 2017, the Washington Post reports police in the U.S. shot and killed 987 people, 68 of them men and women, some of them teenagers like Tony Robinson, were unarmed when they were shot and killed by police. The county with the highest number of police shootings per capita in the country is right here in California, Kern County. Last year, police in L.A. shot more than three times the number of people the New York police shot, even though they have one-fourth as many officers. Studies show police kill unarmed young black men at more than 20 times the rate they kill young white men. What's behind these police shootings, and what's the standard for lethal force? Is there a way, under the law, to prevent future shootings from happening? Today, in studio, we're going to take a bit of a different format. Rather than me introducing our guests, because of the bias that we might carry as individuals in this society, because of the way we are seen in society by police, I'm asking each of our guests to introduce themselves, to tell us who they are, who they look like, and what they carry in their voice. I'm Nancy Mullane. I'm executive producer, and I am a white middle-class, middle-aged woman who lives in San Francisco in a a bit of a diverse, upper-class neighborhood. And that's me. That's what I carry. Osagi? Hi, my name is Osagi Obasagi. I am a tall black male um, approaching middle age who lives in an East Bay neighborhood that thinks it's more diverse than it actually is. And I'm a professor at Berkeley. I'm Tony Gannon, senior producer here at Life of the Law. I'm of mixed cultural heritage. I identify as both white and Latino. I grew up in a middle-class household. I have olive-colored skin when I actually get out into the sun, and I have a big beard and mustache. My name is Troy Williams. I am a black male, six foot two, 250 pounds, formerly incarcerated, and currently working as coordinator of a college program and filmmaker. I'm Lizzie Buchan. I am a legislative advocate with the ACLU of California. I am biracial, and my mother is Chinese, and my dad is white. I identify as mixed race or Asian. I grew up in Irvine, and I live in Oakland. So thank you all for kind of disclosing and sharing who you see yourself as, and also how you might appear, since no one can see us in the studios, I thought that was important. I mean, not only from the standpoint of how we see ourselves, but how 
maybe even a police officer would see us if we were on the street and how much at risk we each feel in the society today. If police are shooting a thousand people a year throughout the country, many of them unarmed, within seconds of an encounter, I think that first impression is important and how what we carry, when what we bring to this conversation about the risk that we are at in this country in terms of giving police officers under the law the lethal force to shoot citizens. Tony, one of the reasons we're holding this conversation today is our most recent episode, Death by Police and Mother's Diary, was the story of Andrea Irwin. Tony, could you tell us, for those who haven't heard the story, what we presented? Sure. As you have partially recapped, this is an audio diary of a mother whose son was murdered by police. For me, it was a very powerful story. I really loved this story for a couple of reasons. One, was that she was the mother of a biracial child. That just factored into the episode in a really interesting way. I think during a work in progress workshop of the story, we presented it to people and the listeners in that particular group all assumed that she was black, just right off the bat. And I thought that was a very interesting sort of moment to realize that. And we tried to make sure and keep that something of a not sort of explained right away. The other reason I love the story is just simply because of the access that was provided to the internal life of a mother going through the grieving process and dealing with all of the things that you might have to deal with afterwards. She became something of an activist. I don't know if that work carries on, but she had to speak out. And we just rarely get that access to a mother who's going through this. So that was the story in its broadest terms. But for so many other reasons, to me, it's just an important story to humanize the people that are not only involved in, quote, officer-involved shootings, but the immediate family of the people that are involved. Asagi, I'd love to hear, like as a Life of the Law Advisory Board member, who helped shape this project. What did you take away from this? Well, it's a heartbreaking story. But to the extent that, you know, Life of the Law is really committed to this idea of demonstrating how law impacts everyday life. In many ways, this story, I think, is indicative of what the organization is really about in terms of showing how not only how a tragedy such as a police shooting can have tremendous impacts on a family, but also how the legal system and its failure to hold the officers accountable has a secondary trauma on the family as well. So it was not only the tragic death of the woman's child, but the fact that for the most part, the city of Madison did not hold the officers accountable. And I believe the story said that the officer that did the shooting is on the streets to this day as a police officer. And those are two different forms of trauma that rips a family apart, as it did in this case. And while the family received a settlement, that was in some ways a tertiary trauma in terms of how that I believe it was $3 million, how that shaped expectations of her and her family in the community, how that money affected how individual family members interacted, and how I believe she said she felt guilty taking the money because it's this odd form of compensation for a life that can never be compensated. And I think the piece did such a magical job of showing the layers of this and demonstrating how lives are really torn apart by police officers who, quite simply, are not engaging community members in the way that we expect them to. I guess I would add to that is that I'm thinking about the people who have to continue to engage this officer who continues to work on the street and what that means for people who have to come in contact with him. And it's not like the people out there don't know his history or don't know what he's capable of or even what kind of message that sends to his mind that he can get away with taking someone's life without any type of consequences whatsoever. I also think about how the message that all of this sends back to the community from a few different standpoints. One, from the officers being back out on patrol and being back on the streets, but also from the position of people in the black community who know that even your whiteness won't save you. 
What do you mean by that? If you're black, right? So she had a biracial son. Had her son been white, there is a definite perception in the community that he would have been treated very differently. He would have walked away alive. Even the little girl, his sister, talked about that. But his whiteness couldn't save him because he was perceived as black. You know, I couldn't help it when we were producing the piece. What was the first message that the police had that this person that they were responding to. He had taken mushrooms and he was reacting to the mushrooms and he was acting erratically and his friends had called for help to support him. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, when was the first moment that the police thought, I'm going to a situation of a race issue? And I heard it in the police 911 call, a black 19-year-old, light-skinned, light-skinned, So in that, what happens right then? Like, is that where race comes in? Is that where that happens, Troy, do you think? If we look at it in a matter of reporting the call, perhaps. But I think race came in long before that picture in the mindset of whoever the officer was, right? His perceptions of race, his trainings around who people are that are black, his socialization in society as to who black people are, the movies, the images that are portrayed day in and day out about who black people are from media, newscasts to everything else about black people in society. The perception of race came in long before that officer even arrived on that scene. And I think this is part of the problem in society is that as much as we like to think or have thought that we were in some sort of post-racial society after President Obama, The fact is, is that we don't have relationships around race in this country that we actually need to have, especially when it comes to policing in our community, where the majority of the officers in our community are white or of a different ethnic background than what the people are that they are policing. So, Troy, you're saying that what that police officer, what was happening in his mind happened Like it's been built up. He's basically been in racist training as a professional or even as an American. You know, of course, I don't have the necessary factual basis to actually prove this point. But historically in this country, there has been a perception about who black people are since we were kidnapped from Africa and brought onto the shores of this country. There's a perception about who we were and who we are. And that continues to exist in this country. And we are not taking a serious look at those issues. We are not taking a serious look at the historical overlay and the racial disparity, the racial perception that black people are something other than human in this society and should be treated anything different than what they would treat their own children in this society. Right. And I think one way to think about this, if you think about the recent phenomenon of Black Panther, Right. Part of the reason why Black Panther the movie was such a cultural phenomenon is because it made the radical statement that black people can be superheroes and that a place like Wakanda can be technologically advanced to the point of having things that other parts of the world didn't have. Right. And that's a radical statement about blackness um, that people have not seen in the media. Um, and that's part of the reason why folks are so energized about it, because this is a narrative that the mainstream media doesn't typically have about black people and what black people can do. And so this gets to Troy's point that when an officer goes into a situation where he's told that there is a young black male who is exhibiting erratic behavior, 
he's bringing into that situation the years of socialization that has taught him to be fearful of young black men in this situation. So this is a problem that is exacerbated by police training, which is often not where it should be. But you have the combination of poor training along with decades of socialization where everyone from the person's parents, friends, since they were you know young children, have been teaching them how to react to these situations or how to react to black people in general. Now you fast forward to a point where this person is now an arm of the state who is legally charged with being able to be able to use a weapon to resolve certain situations, that all happens very quickly. And so in the immediacy of what might seem like a tenuous or frightful situation, the immediate response is not to engage a person in non-lethal ways, but rather the response is to respond to these long socialized fears in a way that results in the use of deadly force. And so I think what Troy is getting at is just this is a complex situation that we have to look at in terms of not only the shortcomings of police departments and police trainings, but how we as a society, when we teach people to be fearful of black people and other minorities at a young age, that allows people to, when they grow up and are in positions of authority, to treat people, to treat minorities in a way that can often lead to their untimely deaths. Especially in addition, I would say, to the fact that there has not been and rarely, if ever, are there consequences for that deadly encounter. Right. Right? right. And on top of everything that Osagi just said, there are not consequences for that behavior. So why should I change my behavior if there is no consequence for the behavior? Right. There is no incentive to change. And the reason why there's no consequence is because when you have prosecutors or juries who are faced with this question of whether or not a police officer acted poorly, the way they're thinking about the question is like, well, if I was in a situation and I saw a young black man come at me in this way, I would have done the same thing. And that's part of the problem. That is, we are socialized to engage young black men in a way that thoroughly disregards their lives. And so it speaks to the greater point of, you know, when folks talk about Black Lives Matter, what we're talking about is this idea that we have to take seriously the fact that African-American lives are precious and should not be treated as cannon fodder or should not be engaged with in a way that assumes that they are all is a deadly threat to someone. I think that this is all really important and race absolutely infects the entire system of policing. And one of the manifestations of that is that our laws around when an officer can use deadly force Mm -hmm. are so broad. They give such wide discretion to police officers. And as a consequence, we have you know, Nancy relayed the stats earlier where police kill unarmed young black men at 20 times the rate that they kill unarmed white men of the same age. And it's an appalling statistic. And that's one of the consequences of having such broad discretion in our law. The legal standard right now is that an officer can kill someone if they perceived a threat. And certainly what we're discussing now about implicit bias and about often explicit bias where a person's race can feed into that perception of a threat. Our current legal standard really, it allows an officer to assume that someone is going to be armed. Lizzie, is that a national standard? You know, it's interesting when we think of law, we think, okay, so a perceived threat. But if the person really wasn't a threat, then the law will adapt to that. Like the law won't apply. So tell me more about what is the law nationally? What is the state law? How does that work? Yeah, so it's a little complicated because California, so we have our law on use of force and uh, what's referred to as justifiable homicide by an officer. 
those were written in the 1800s. And the justifiable homicide by an officer, that hasn't been updated since then. And so it is very out of date. It's actually below the standard of the Constitution. The current law in California says an officer can kill someone who's accused of committing a felony, any felony. Now, because that's below the standard of the Constitution, it's actually not applied in a criminal context. So that's where it gets a little complicated. But there have been a couple Supreme Court decisions in the 1980s that added more specificity to these laws and established a baseline of when officers are allowed to use deadly force. And what the main decision Graham v. Connor said was that an officer can use deadly force if they perceive that there was a threat of serious bodily injury or death, and a reasonable officer in that position could have also used deadly force. And so in California, even though we have this obsolete law, basically, we apply the constitutional standard because you can't have a law that's below the standard of the Constitution. So the problem with the reasonable officer standard is that it allows force whenever, deadly force, whenever it's reasonable. It doesn't have to be necessary. And so that means that an officer can be in a situation where they perceive this threat and one option might be using deadly force. Another option might be retreating, calling for backup. Another option might be employing some de-escalation tactics. So their officers have a lot of tools at our disposal, but under current law, they don't actually have to use them if they can justify using deadly force. And so that's really one of the major problems with current law. Another problem is that we don't hold officers accountable for their conduct leading up to a deadly use of force in a criminal context. So that means that under current law, an officer can jump in front of a moving vehicle and shoot the driver because suddenly the officer is in danger, even though they absolutely created that danger. Right. We saw this with Tamir Rice. These officers, you know, they heard reports of an armed person in a park. And we all know now it turned out to be a 12-year-old with a water gun. But they thought that this was a dangerous situation. But they decided to pull up right next to Tamir Rice, and they killed him within seconds. That was absolutely their poor decision-making that created a dangerous situation. They were not held accountable for that because they made the claim that was held up that they were in a dangerous situation and they had to use deadly force. Whereas, you know, there were so many other options that they could have employed. They could have kept their distance, called for backup. They could have told Tamir Rice that they would shoot him if he didn't put down his gun. There were a lot of different things that they could have done, but because of their negligence... Mm -hmm. They created this situation in which they were able to justify using deadly force. Right. I don't know if I've ever heard two words more abstract and therefore more subject to interpretation, <laughs> objectively reasonable. <laughs> like from a documentary producer standpoint, I would love to get into the head of an officer and know the way we were able to get into the head of, say, Andrea Irwin and do like a diary, an officer's diary. I would love to do that. We will probably never know what was going on in the head of Officer Kenny when he shot Tony Robinson. I just want to add to what Lizzie just laid out is that the other problem with Graham v. Connor is that that you don't actually get to what they say, second guess the officer's split decision in that moment. So all the officer has to do was say, I fear for my life, and then everything else is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that put 
everyone actually in the United States who's walking around on the streets of this country at risk. It puts the people who live in downtown Oakland at risk more so than the people who live in Piedmont, in part because police officers are not going into Piedmont. When they get calls in Piedmont, they're not going into them with the level of aggression as they do with situations in Oakland, unless there are specific reasons to do so. So the very question that you're asking interacts with our prior conversation about how certain demographic attributes trigger certain responses by the police and how law that intersects with that problem to allow police to not be held accountable after the fact because of this notion that if there is some subjective notion of fear, that that then can be seen as an objectively reasonable way to discharge one's weapon in a situation. Where's the motivation? Why aren't cases being brought before the Supreme Court to take it to the next level? That's a lazy question. <laughs> well, That's I mean, there, so there I was mean, a case last week. It was actually a qualified immunity case. And so this was Casella. And they were trying to determine whether this officer's actions violated the Constitution, the constitutional standards set by Graham v. Connor. And so this was a situation where a woman was standing with a knife. She was about six feet away from a neighbor, and she was not behaving erratically. She was speaking calmly to her neighbor, and officers came, and one of them shot her several times. She did not die, but she was shot several times. And so this was a case that Supreme Court just decided last week about whether that violated the constitutional set by Graham, and they determined that it did not. And it was a pretty horrifying example that really speaks to the urgency of having a standard that is higher than Graham. Our court is pretty conservative at this time, but there's a great dissent by Sotomayor and Ginsburg that I'd encourage people to read it. Sotomayor states that, you know, this is telling the public that unreasonable conduct will go unpunished. It tells officers they can shoot first, think later, and it's really sending an alarming signal to law enforcement and the public. So I hope that we can get the constitutional standard higher, that there can be a case where they will make a determination that is more protective of people's lives and Fourth Amendment rights. But I don't know if we have the court for that quite yet. Well, it's interesting because I read that case and it was a white woman and she actually said to the officer after he shot her, why did you shoot me? Mm -hmm. And she survived. And so that kind of brings it back to, all right, so now we have a Supreme Court that had the opportunity to set a higher standard of police conduct in their use of lethal force. And here's a white woman bringing the case to the Supreme Court and they decide, no, we've, you know, the standard is fine. Uh, We need to give police this almost unquestionable opportunity to use whatever force they want to use in a situation where they feel there's a threat. So if this is where we are here in 2018, where do we go from here? Yeah. So, you know, I think that this really speaks to the urgency that we need to change things. I mean, policing is in crisis in California and across the nation. There's nowhere else in the world where police officers kill people at the same rate as they do here. And California is one of the uh, one of the worst states. Police kill more people here than elsewhere. And we actually have higher rates of killing. Nancy, you mentioned Kern County, Long Beach, Bakersfield. We have San Bernardino, Stockton. (laughs) Those are some of the cities with the highest rates of killings in the nation. Per capita, right? This is per capita. Yes, those are per capita. Mm -hmm. And so we have legislation that we announced last week that we're working on with Assemblymember Weber. And so this is an attempt to change that standard to say that 
reasonable isn't good enough. It has to be necessary. There had to have been no other alternatives to using deadly force. And it also is going to take accountable an officer's actions leading up to the deadly force. And if an officer is negligent in their behavior or if an officer is the one who created the dangerous situation, then it is not justified and they will be held accountable. There are a lot of problems. There are a lot of reasons why police unnecessarily kill people and disproportionately people of color. One of the problems that we're trying to fix here is that the legal standard just isn't good enough. It gives way too broad of latitude for officers to kill people. This is AB 931, Police Accountability and Community Protection Act, that's before the California legislature? Yes, that's right, AB 931, yeah. So you said we brought this. So is the ACLU one of the friendly organizations that's bringing the law before the legislature? Yeah, so we are sponsors of the bill, along with several other community partners. We have a great coalition behind this bill, including organizations that are working on the ground with families who have lost loved ones to police officers. And we've got a great and diverse group together working on this. And so we've been working on this for a couple of years. You know, this change is long overdue. And so we brought this to Dr. Weber because she's long been a champion of police accountability and police transparency. And so she was really the perfect assembly person to take this on. And so she has been a great champion. Can you get into the language that you're aiming to change in the law, specifically language you're trying to change? So there are a couple statutes that we're working with. So one is the use of force statute. And so This is what spells out when officers are authorized to use force. And we are creating a special category for deadly force, where there are certain restrictions on deadly force. And so what we're saying is that an officer can use deadly force only when it is necessary to prevent imminent death or serious bodily injury. And we define necessary as no reasonable alternatives to the use of deadly force and that it's given the totality of the circumstances. And so that's how we're incorporating the officer's actions and other things that should be known to the officer at the time leading up to the force. So, for example, if the officer should know ahead of time that the person is not armed or if the person has a mental health issue, these are things that should be taken into account when we're determining whether a deadly force is justified. And then in looking at the other portion of the statute, is the justifiable homicide by a police officer statute. And we're changing that by first incorporating this requirement of necessity by saying that, again, just repeating that there can't have been any reasonable alternatives and given the totality of the circumstances. And then we're also explicitly saying that if an officer was grossly negligent in their actions leading up to the deadly force, then it is not justified. How hard is it to get the kind of support you need to get this passed right now? Because it would have to get through both the Assembly and the Senate, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's going to be tough. (laughs) It's a very major change. There is no state that has done this. And, you know, we are going above the standard of the Constitution for this. So it's a major change. It's also a very reasonable change. Certainly when we explain this bill to people, they think it sounds pretty rational that officers should only be able to use deadly force when it's necessary. But I work in Sacramento, and Stephon Clark's killing a few weeks ago by an officer has really gripped the community here. There are protests every day. 
It is on the front page of the newspaper every day. And so the legislators, regardless of where they represent, they spend most of their time in Sacramento. And so they are seeing this every day. I think that they are really feeling the pressure and they are also hearing the call from community members to take action. And so I think that we really have an opportunity here. Certainly the community members from across the state, this is not a new issue for them. People have been mobilizing long before Mike Brown on this issue. And so I think that the call just continues to get stronger. And I'm hopeful that the legislators are going to follow the people on this. What's the pushback on this? Who is opposed to this? So we've gotten some statements of opposition from many major law enforcement organizations. And one thing to be clear, the language hasn't been public yet. We're hoping to make it public sometime this week. So a lot of organizations haven't been able to actually read the language, but they are basing their opposition on what their understanding of the bill is, to be fair. So we have gotten opposition from law enforcement organizations that they say that this is putting officers' lives at risk, this is putting members of the public's lives at risk, that this is a knee-jerk reaction to the situation in Sacramento. So that's what we're hearing, you know, and I think that, well, first of all, the idea that it's a knee-jerk reaction, you know, these ideas that are in the bill about necessity, about requiring an imminent threat, about looking at the officer's actions leading up to the event, those are all best practices. That is recommended by police associations, by legal experts. When Obama's Department of Justice goes into a police agency to reform their policies, these are the recommendations that they make. Uh, You know, these are not radical ideas. They are coming from policing experts, and they are considered best practices. And what we have seen is that agencies with more restrictive use of force policies actually have lower rates of officers being assaulted or killed. The statistics, I mean, not many officers are killed in the U.S., and so, you know, it makes the statistics a little difficult to interpret, but that is what we've seen. And we definitely see lower rates of officers killing civilians when they have more restrictive use of force policies. What would be the soonest in California that this bill could take effect? If everything went well for this bill, when would be the soonest we'd see it? If this bill passes and is signed by the governor, it would go into effect January 1st, 2019. So I just wonder, we don't live with this bill now. We're living with the current conditions. So, you know, I walk on the street. I'm not afraid. I'm really not. I see a police officer drive by. Yeah, I don't like them when they're behind my car because I'm probably going to get a ticket and I have to pay. But I'm not worried about my life. That's just who I am in America today. And I'm sure that's a privilege based on the color of my skin What is it like for everybody here to live with the knowledge that it's not the same? That's a difficult question to answer when you've lived with that thought all your life. It's like how to not live with fear when you've grew up since you can remember having a fear of the police and a distrust of police departments, right? That's a very difficult question to have. And while there are some things that are going on in the community, at least in the East Bay with the barbershop forums, with the police department that I've actually been involved in that are trying to create some change, at least among black officers and people of color in the community. But that is such a difficult question to answer when you don't know how to live any other way. So I guess I would 
question people to think about what it's like to have to live like that every day. I don't even know how to qualify that question. Yeah, it's a complicated question, I believe. I mean, I have very complicated feelings toward police. I mean, I think that I've also grown up with a certain amount of fear and reservation, in particular fear of sort of unjustified use of their authority. But then on the other hand, I also have tremendous respect for what police officers do. So there's a part of me that doesn't know how to answer the question as well. One thing I did want to bring into the conversation is that we haven't honed in on the mental illness aspect to it. Tony Robinson was not mentally ill as far as we know, but he was in a mentally altered state. We just will never know probably how the bias of the officer factored into the decision he made in those 18 seconds when he pulled the trigger seven times. And part of it is that we were talking about this after the fact. He had consumed seven grams of mushrooms. That's a tremendous amount of psilocybin. And, you know, had he been an officer that happened to know that fact, that it's just a tremendous amount, I mean, would he have cared or would he have acted differently? Right. I think to get back to Troy's point, you know, as a young black man, uh, well, not so young anymore, but <laughs> um, as a as a 40-year-old black man, I'm thinking back how my life has been shaped by the fact that I am deeply aware of how people perceive, you know, six foot two, six foot three black men walking around in society. And, you know, for the most part, it's like little things that I've adapted that I haven't really given much thought to, but have just become part of my daily routine. So, for example, this idea of being consciously aware of how you're perceived and how your behavior is perceived is something that I think kind of shapes the experiences of black men in a way that others don't have to deal with. And in some ways, you know, these are relatively small things. On the other hand, these are things that affect your quality of life and they are connected to other forms of health outcomes and health disparities. So there has been research talking about how the cumulative effect of these type of stressors can have an adverse impact on people's health outcomes. And so these are things that have to be taken seriously. Are there zones that are safe? I mean, if you're walking around San Francisco or you're walking around Oakland or you travel to conferences all the time, Asagi, and Troy, you travel quite a bit. You just got back from New York. Are there zones where you feel I'm going to be okay? I wouldn't say it's a particular zone as in some type of location, but there is always a thought of how I carry myself, how I dress. If I am stopped by an officer, I definitely go into a zone my interaction with this officer so that I'm perceived as more friendly and less aggressive. So there are certain things that as a black male, like Osagi said, a six foot two, 200 plus pound black male who can look and be menacing in his perception from other people, there's a way that that interaction has to happen. And I have to say that there are some things that we are trying to do, at least in the Bay Area, as far as build relationships up. Because I think people fear what they don't know or what they don't understand. And so we have these barbershop farms where we go out and we try to build different relationships up so that certain officers can know who it is that they're dealing with. Right. And for the most part, it's been mostly officers from the black community who want change in the community that have been participating in some of these forms and really trying to educate different people about the reality of how we have to live with because even they're faced with racism in their particular police departments as well. I've learned a lot from my interactions with them over the past year and a year plus. And I have to say that my reactions also change drastically if I'm pulled over by a black officer, I'm stopped by a black officer, or if I'm stopped by an officer who's white. I have to put that face on. I'm going to put it on no matter whoever stops me because I probably don't want a ticket (laughs) as well. But the thought that my life could be taken in a given moment has my hands at 10 and 2 and that me very alert about 
what emotions that I'm exuding when I'm pulled over by this officer. What does that feel like when you see an officer and they look at you? I know how I feel, and it's probably around a three level. Mm-hmm. What's your level? It gets pretty intense. So the other week I was in Oakland. I was standing outside the studio, had my cell phone in my hand, and the officers turned the corner. As soon as they turned the corner, I made sure that my cell phone went right up by my ear because I want them to know that this is a cell phone, right? And they stopped and they looked at me, and part of me is pissed, right, because the way they stopped, hey, like, what are you doing? And, like, you know, my, my I'm standing on the corner, on the phone, outside the studio. I want to have a bad reaction, but I can't afford to have a bad reaction. So I smiled. Hey, how you doing? It was a one of them was a woman officer. So I said something flirty, you know, but my whole thought is like to make it past this without any bracelets or bullets. And so is to have this peaceful interaction. And yeah, my heart rate, it raises up. But at the same time, I control my heart rate so that I'm not exuding some type of anxiety or because that anxiety itself can be perceived as you just did something wrong. And I think what Troy's talking about are kind of these general survival mechanisms you develop as a black man growing up in general. So, for example, you know, growing up, my parents always told me, you know, if you go into a store, never put your hands into your pockets. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you buy something from a store, always leave with a receipt and always have the item in a bag. Right. Because you never want to give anybody the perception that you have done something inappropriate. And so I think these are things that black communities and black families teach each other in terms of how to navigate society in a way to not put yourself in a position where you end up in a bad situation. And this conversation around police violence is the extension of that in terms of what are the set of things that one can do to protect yourself from something that, quite frankly, we often have no control over. I mean, look at the most recent police shootings that have generated the largest headlines. And these are things that more often than not, there's not much that Timmy rights could have done, right? Um, There's not much that Alton Sterling could have done, right? These are things that even in the best case scenario, where you try to quote unquote act with respectability and all the things that people tell us how we should carry ourselves, even those situations, even respectable behavior can lead to deadly outcomes. But I think this is a multi-layer problem and the issue of police use of force and excessive force and extension of the various ways in which young men of color have to be super aware of how they carry themselves in order to avoid being treated unfairly. There has to be consequences for behavior. If there are no consequences for behavior, then we have a lawless society, even though that society wears a uniform. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there has to be consequences for behavior. And the hope, the hope is that if this bill passes or when this bill passes, that it will actually be something that holds rogue officers, officers who take lives of young people, period that they will be held accountable for those actions. I can guarantee you that if people are held accountable, that those shootings will stop. They will drastically reduce themselves. Right. And I think another issue with this, and we talked about Graham v. Connor a few minutes ago, and one of the more insidious aspects of Graham v. Connor that doesn't get as much attention as it should is that prior to Graham v. Connor, individual plaintiffs would draw upon different parts of the Constitution to bring certain claims around excessive force. So you saw people bringing using the Equal Protection Clause, various aspects of the 14th Amendment, for example. And what Graham v. Connor said was that every claim regarding to police use of excessive force has to be read through the Fourth Amendment, right? And to make a long story short, what that does is that reframes each issue around police use of excessive force in individual terms. That is, what did the individual officer do to the individual plaintiff or decedent? Rather than understanding police use of excessive force as an iteration of racial 
injustice, right? So if you think about police shootings in group terms, in terms of how certain groups are over-policed and treated differently, that leads to different conclusions and different ways of thinking about the problem of excessive force, rather than keeping conversations simply on whether or not an individual police officer acted inappropriately to an individual person. So this is all to say that when we have this conversation around police shootings, we have to keep the broader context in mind, that is the broader context of a long history of racism, a long history of over-patrolling communities of color, and how notions of racism and white supremacy shape these interactions between police and communities of color. And when we only talk about these individual interactions and de-racialize the situation, you get a very inaccurate picture of all the variables that are leading to these tragic outcomes. Well, we're just about done. We have very little time left. I'd like to thank everyone first for coming and having this conversation, but I'd also like to give each of you an opportunity to you know, say how you feel about this at the end of this conversation. Troy? I think the conversation is good. I think this conversation needs to be heard on a much broader you know, level, and I hope that people all around the country are listening and will listen to this conversation and start conversations up of their own. My hope is that the bill will actually have an effect. And yet, you know, the part of me that knows a little bit about the law has that hope. And then there's a part of me that grew up in a country filled with racism that questions, will it change, right? Will this bill actually go far enough or even be allowed to go far enough for it to actually effect some change? Those are my questions. Lizzie? Yeah, I think to those points and to the point that Osagi was making, we're not going to legislate the racism out of policing. It is so ingrained in the entire system of how policing works. And I think that bills like AB 931 and we have another one, SB 1421, that deals with access to law enforcement misconduct records. We see this as elements of a movement and they have to be seen within the context of a movement, a movement that comes from the communities and from communities most impacted by police violence, where there is such a strong drive to hold officers accountable, but most of all to make it so that police stop killing their people. These bills are not the final answer by far. We are hoping that they can be steps, if they're passed, that they're steps in the right direction that can help make sure that the movement keeps moving forward. But we don't view these bills in isolation or in a vacuum. They are part of a movement where we're trying to have these wins in the legislature to move our laws forward. But there's so much about the culture and our whole society that really needs to change. So these are just pieces of the movement. Tony? I would love to do, as I was starting to say earlier, I would love to do an officer's diary. I'd love to get into the head of a police officer that has gone through this. I don't know if that will ever be possible, but in that line of thinking, I would love to see more transparency into police procedure and in a general just sort of vi of support from police that de-escalation can also be a tactic and not just killing people, in particular unarmed people. And Asagi. Yeah, I think it's important to connect the conversation that we're having today about police violence with their broader conversation about gun violence in America. I think there are deep connections between the situation that was talked about in this podcast and the shooting at Parkland and other places that America has a gun problem and, and law enforcement is not exempt from that. And I think the more we connect these conversations, I think the more light that can be shed on how to find solutions. That is all the time we have today for our in-studio. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think. Or if you have a question about the law or you have a news story you want us to sort out, send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. 
be sure to include your contact info so we can follow up. Thanks to our in-studio team, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of our advisory board. Tony Gannon, our senior producer. Troy Williams, founder of the San Quentin Prison Report and RISE coordinator at Chabot College. And Lizzie Buchan, legislative advocate for the ACLU California Center for Advocacy and Policy. Tony Gannon and Andrea Hendrickson produced this episode. Rachel Kane was our social media editor. Katie McMurrin engineered here at KQED in San Francisco, and Katie Orr engineered from the studios of KQED in Sacramento. We also want to take a minute to thank listeners who have made donations to help Life of the Law make our 100 by 100 challenge of raising $10,000. These funds will make it possible to complete production on eight feature episodes between now and June 30th. Take a minute to join listeners, friends, and supporters who have made donations. We'll be thanking everyone who makes a donation in our upcoming episodes. This episode, special thanks to Heather Thompson, Shankar Rahman, Hadar Avaram, Erica Pearson, Renee Kramer, Lila LaHood, Edmund and Hillary Billings, Joaquim Salvesberg, and Margaret Wenmacher. Make a donation by going to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Next on Life of the Law... My father was right. It didn't matter how much I lied on my resume. My real resume was in my cells. Why should anybody invest all that money to train me when there are a thousand other applicants with a far cleaner profile? Of course, it's illegal to discriminate. Genoism, it's called. But no one takes the law seriously. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.